of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he knows when it's time to step aside. The Kentucky Republican announced this week that he'll step down from his leadership position in November. Today on our Cincinnati Edition Weekly News Review, we'll talk about his decision and the impact it's already having in Kentucky. We'll also hear how Ohio lawmakers are handling appropriations and the different approaches being taken in the House and Senate. And we'll discuss a lawsuit filed at a lo- against a local culinary empire. We have a lot of news to talk about. Joining me now to get us started is Kentucky Public Radio Capital reporter Sylvia Goodman. Welcome back, Sylvia. Thanks for having me here. Oh, thanks so much for being here. So Senator Mitch McConnell announced this week he's going to step down as Senate Minority Leader in November. Was this a surprise? I think it was actually a surprise for a lot of state leaders. Um, But at the same time, uh, you know, there's been a lot of questions about whether or not McConnell will run again uh, in, in, you know, a few years. And... uh, I think that uh, some Kentuckians feel like maybe it's time for a new face, but he's definitely had a huge influence on Kentucky politics, on national politics. Definitely. What are some of the reasons he gave for his decision? So, I mean, like you just heard in that clip, he's kind of said that it's time for him to move on. It's time for him to start a new chapter, um, you know, kind of maybe a new time for a new generation of leadership within the Republican Party. How much does his relationship or lack of a relationship with former President Trump figure into all this? You have to think it figures in uh, quite a bit. Obviously, there's a feeling that maybe the Republican Party is moving away from from a lot of the party that McConnell helped build over the past several decades. Um, Obviously, McConnell has broken with Trump on a lot of things, although there's some disagreement about how much at the end of the day he does end up kind of following a Trump agenda, uh, working with Trump. But, uh, you know, he's been pretty vocal about about, you know, when he disagrees with Donald Trump. And I think that there is definitely a huge divide in the Republican Party. And it's unclear if he's on the winning side of that divide. Hmm. Senator McConnell's the longest serving Senate leader in history. How big a deal is this politically for for Kentucky and the nation as a whole? Yeah. So, I mean, in Kentucky, a lot of state political leaders have already been telling me that uh Mitch McConnell is one of the reasons they feel like Kentucky stayed on the national radar. Uh, You know, he's the only one of the four party leaders that um, is from the heartland. You know, that's what one of the the phrase that the state political leaders have been using. And, uh, you know, he's kind of put Kentucky at the forefront in a lot of ways. I mean, they pointed to the infrastructure bill, which included tons of money for Kentucky, like funding for the Brent Spence Companion Bridge. Uh, and he's also had a really big influence on state politics, really specifically. Uh, you know, he was instrumental in turning our once majority Democratic state legislature into a body that is now a Republican supermajority, 80 percent Republican. Yeah. And it, it, he's indicated he certainly uh, will still be a force to be reckoned with. I still have enough gas in my tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics. And I intend to do so with all the enthusiasm with which they've become accustomed. You kind of referenced this earlier, but has he made clear whether or not he'll run again in in 2026? No, he has not made that clear. That's a a topic of a lot of speculation. Um, You know, some of the politicians who are close with him, like Kentucky House Speaker David Osborne, says they don't think actually that McConnell himself has made up his mind yet on that. 
Um, that's really yet to be seen. Um, you know, some people are wondering if maybe he'll make that announcement after November. Uh, but, you know, he's remained firm that at the very least, he intends to complete his current term uh, without a doubt. I know Kentucky lawmakers acted quickly after Senator McConnell's announcement to advance a bill that's related to how a U.S. Senate vacancy would be filled. What's the law now and, and how would this bill change that? So that's a great question. And I should note that the sponsor of that bill says that it's unrelated to the announcement, that he filed it before he knew that McConnell would make this announcement. But in 2021, the state legislature actually already has changed once how vacancies on the Senate would be filled. It was a move that was backed and supported by McConnell. Um, and so essentially, they took power away from the governor to make an appointment alone, which is you know a power that is conferred by the legislature. Um, and essentially, they changed it so that the party of the vacating senator would give the governor a list of three options for who they who could fill in that seat. So like, for example, if, say, McConnell were to vacate a seat for whatever reason, uh, the Republican Party of Kentucky would give a list of three names to Governor Andy Bashir, who is a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And that's what the current law is right now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the new law, the one that has been proposed that we'll see if it goes anywhere, uh, would fully take that appointment power away from the governor. So instead of filling that seat, uh, it would be filled with a special election, which the sponsor of the bill says is more democratic. It has nothing to do with McConnell's health, so he says. Hmm. Has Governor Andy Bashir responded to that? Uh, yes, he is uh, very much against it. Uh, he says it's another attempt to take away power from the governor. And he says it's just because he's a Democrat uh, that they don't want to give him that power. Um, it's been like this for a long time in the state and in a lot of states that the governor makes that appointment alone. Um, and it does feel potentially like interesting timing here. Uh, but we'll have to see if that bill even makes any uh, progress because, you know, obviously they recently changed the appointment process. Um, they just selected this new process. So who knows if uh, this new one, this this new attempt will will gain any traction. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about another bill um, that we've been, that you've been following in Frankfurt. A Louisville Republican filed a bill earlier this week to add new exceptions to Kentucky's abortion ban. What would this bill do if it were passed? Yeah, so this is our first Republican-led bill this session to create exceptions to state abortion ban, which has been a big uh, conversation here in Kentucky. We have a near-total ban on abortion. Um, And it essentially would say that for survivors of rape and incest, they would have uh, the, within the first six weeks of the pregnancy would have the option to terminate. Uh, it would also allow for people who have fetal, uh, you know, their fetus has an abnormality that's fatal. They could also access an abortion. Um, and essentially, it, it, it's been proposed by Louisville Republican Ken Fleming. But I, I have to say that that doesn't mean that it'll necessarily move just because it's Republican sponsored. Last year, the majority whip, uh, Representative Jason Demas from Louisville uh, or from the Louisville area, he also filed an exceptions bill uh, that was kind of similar. It was a little bit broader. It said within the first 15 weeks for survivors, but that, that also didn't go anywhere. It didn't get a hearing. Um, so everyone's really watching to see whether or not exceptions will be able to, to, you know, play a part in this session. How did the sponsor of this bill explain his reasoning for it? 
So uh, that's been a, a bit of a conversation. He said that, you know, as a father of two daughters, he feels like uh, women need to have some options to protect them, um, you know, especially for that fetal abnormality point, uh, that it was a matter of compassion, especially for survivors of rape and incest, to, to allow them some options. Um, you know, some abortion advocates, though, have said that, uh, or abortion ad access advocates have said that, you know, allowing survivors of rape and incest to terminate within the first six weeks is not really much of an exception at all. A lot of women don't even know they're pregnant uh, within the first six weeks. Um, and there's a lot of trauma to get through as a survivor of rape or incest uh, that this bill really doesn't factor in, according to some advocates. Hmm. Democrats had filed a bill to add exception to the state's ban, too. How, how is this bill different from what Democrats had filed? Yeah. So really early on in the session, uh, Senate Democrats uh, filed a bill. They call it Hadley's Law, which is named after Hadley Duvall. Uh, her, she's became kind of a, a national figure because of the ads that she filmed for in favor of Andy Bashir for governor. Um, and essentially it would do similar things. Uh, the biggest difference is, is that it doesn't put that limitation, that six week or 15 week limitation for survivors of rape and incest to access an abortion. Uh, the Democrat bill also would have expanded the exception for uh, in cases of the mother's health. The current bill says that the woman has to be in imminent danger of, of death or permanent injury. Uh, the Democrat bill would expand that to uh, a lot more cases where the mother's health could be at risk. Do you have any sense for whether any of these bills related to exceptions could, will get anywhere this session? I don't want to rule it out yet, uh, but, you know, we're, we're getting along here in the session and uh, at least that Democratic one hasn't gained any traction. Uh, it was pretty recent. Like you said, it was just this week that the Republican one was filed. But I, I think a lot of People are, you know, looking and watching, but uh, not necessarily. It's not it's definitely nowhere near a slam dunk. I know that we've also seen a few bills filed that are kind of from the uh, anti-abortion movement uh, from pro-life members of the legislature that are trying to be kind of a, an alternative to exceptions. You know, for example, a bill to expand access to perinatal palliative care, which uh, helps is supposed to help women who um, have uh, have, you know, their pregnancy has a fetal abnormality, a fatal abnormality. Um, so they're trying to kind of look for other options outside of uh, allowing abortions in those cases. So I, I haven't seen any of those bills really pick up traction yet this session, but I, I don't think it's a slam dunk by any means. Mm. Well, let's talk about a piece of legislation that, that did uh, make its way through this session. The Kentucky General Assembly passed legislation that would nullify a source of income discrimination ban in Louisville and a similar ordinance in Lexington. Explain what these bans in Louisville and Lexington are about and what this bill would do. Yeah, so it uh, passed. It's now at the governor's desk. Uh, a lot of people are expecting the governor to veto that. So we'll see it probably likely, you know, not a sure thing, but likely before the legislature again uh, to potentially override that veto. But the bill essentially says that landlords can do they do have the right to discriminate against a potential tenant based on uh, the where they get their income. So specifically, if they receive federal assistance, um, you know, another version of this bill specifically pulled out Section 8 
recipients, but the per- version that passed and that's now gone to the governor, it's basically anyone who gets federal assistance. So a landlord can discriminate against someone who maybe gets assistance because they're a veteran or maybe someone who gets assistance because they have a, a disability from the federal government. So it's... Um, it could have some pretty wide-reaching implications. Uh, Louisville has one of these anti-discrimination ordinances, uh, and also Lexington just actually passed one, uh, and it was supposed to go into effect actually today, I believe. Uh, so both of those bills would, uh, both of those ordinances would be totally nullified uh, by this, by this bill, um, and. Essentially, what advocates in favor of those ordinances say is that it doesn't force landlords to rent to those people. It doesn't force landlords to accept those tenants. It just says you can't use that as a a reason to automatically disqualify someone. Like, you know, for example, you can't put on your website, no Section 8 tenants, you know, don't apply if you get Section 8, which is a thing that happens in a lot of places that don't have these ordinances. And so they've said, hey, you you can't use where this person is getting their money to pay the rent as a reason not to rent to them. What why do supporters of this this bill, this which, you know, will become law if the governor signs it or if they override a veto of it, why do supporters say this is needed? So essentially the idea is that uh the argument is it's a property rights issue that, you know, landlords have the right to choose who uh rents from them. And if they say that they don't want Section 8 tenants there, that's their right, that it's their property. Um, So that's basically the argument over local control, which is the arguments the Democrats have been making that, you know, a city has the right to uh, or has a a prevailing interest in trying to make sure that there's less homelessness, that people who do receive that federal assistance can find housing. So that's kind of the the dichotomy here. Hmm. What kind of hurdles do residents face when it comes to to getting vouchers and some of this government assistance and then using that assistance to pay for housing? There is a pretty huge wait list uh, for federal assistance right now for that Section 8 housing uh, assistance. And even once you get it, it's not a sure thing. Like I've said, you know, a lot of landlords do discriminate. Even under this ordinance, there's, you know, we're getting hearing advocates say that uh, it's pretty hard to prove whether or not someone's discriminating on that basis. Uh, Another uh, hurdle is that there has to be a federally mandated inspection of the property to make sure it follows all of these different guidelines to make sure it's uh, fully livable. Um, and again, this the Louisville ordinance does not require that landlords even meet that inspection. If you fail that inspection, you know, you don't have to fix your apartment so that it's good enough for Section 8. Um, it just says that you can't automatically disqualify people on those grounds. Hmm. OK, well, I guess now the next step is to wait and see what the governor decides, huh? Exactly, exactly. OK. Well, I've been talking with Kentucky Public Radio Capitol reporter Sylvia Goodman. Thank you so much for your time today, Sylvia. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Up next, we'll hear how some public colleges in Ohio are re-examining race-based scholarships. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. When the U.S. Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions last summer, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost told the state's universities to follow suit. Now some colleges are re-examining race-based scholarship programs. Joining me now to talk about that and other news from Columbus this week is Ohio Public Media Statehouse News Bureau correspondent Sarah Donaldson. Thanks for being here, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Lucy. 
That um, race-based scholarship program story that you wrote is so important, but I want to start by talking about appropriations. The Ohio Senate approved more than a billion dollars in appropriations for the next two years, but the funding wasn't passed in a standalone capital bill. Explain what the Senate did. Yeah, so it's been um, quite a busy month for appropriations at the Ohio State House, and the chambers really aren't seeing eye to eye. Um, So I'm actually going to go back to about two weeks ago. The House passed a bill, um, House Bill 2, and that appropriated $2 billion total, kind of two buckets here. Some were one-time funds, and then some were bonded money that we see every two years in the capital budget. So they passed that bill and the Senate kind of said, or at least I should say Senate President Huffman said, yeah, we're not working on that timeline. We're working on our own timeline. So the bill that passed this week out of the Senate was um, not passed in a standalone bill. Like you said, it was introduced as floor amendments to House Bill 27. So that bill was a pretty non-controversial bill that requires state colleges to offer financial cost and aid disclosure forms, has nothing really to do with the budget. Um, But senators introduced all those appropriations that you mentioned to that bill. So it's $1.4 billion, $600 million for schools, $575 million for public works projects. And those two buckets kind of mimic some of what the House passed. Also, $38 million for grant programs for adoptions and almost $200 million for the Ohio State Fair by request of the governor. How did the House Speaker respond to that approach? He's basically signaling that it's dead on arrival. He's um, House Speaker Jason Stevens has um, sent a memo out to House members, you know, basically saying, you know, we sent over this money in House Bill 2, you know, kind of signaling that that's the vehicle that he wants it to move in. And there is a lot of disalignment over a specific part of the budget that's not, it's not technically part of the capital budget. When Ohio lawmakers did the operating budget last year, um, there were excess funds um, and they'll be used this year for one-time strategic projects. Um, So there's $700 million, and the chambers kind of agreed that the House would get $350 million, the Senate would get $350 million, and these projects don't have to be, this money doesn't have to be going toward public entities that are doing these projects. So the House made all their allocations for their $350 million in House Bill 2 two weeks ago. But the Senate said, hey, we're not even going to start this process until April. So hold off, you know, whatever. You're moving a little too fast. So there's definitely some disalignment on that specific $700 million bucket, which is why some of these other capital projects are also kind of falling into this disalignment. Huh. So the House passed House Bill 2, sent it to the Senate. The Senate said, whoa, we're not going to deal with that yet, but then added these appropriations to another bill that now the House is saying they're not going to deal with that yet. There are hundreds of millions of dollars for community projects that are part of these bills. What What's at stake here for communities across Ohio? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's just, you know, going to be a longer process than the House maybe 
wanted. I think the House was really advocating to get this done as soon as possible. I don't know that the Senate wants to be working on the same timeline. They say that they need to do more due diligence. But both chambers, I should note, you know, House Bill 2, when it was introduced in the House um, two weeks ago, there was only about 24 hours that these allocations were made public. Um, and, you know, it's almost $2 billion in money. And the allocations in the Senate that were added to um, House Bill 27, they were added as a floor amendment. So I, as a reporter, didn't even see where this money was going to until literally minutes before it was debated and passed. Wow. And what did you say is the Senate's timing on this House bill? I mean, when will all this back and forth potentially get resolved? I, w- I wish I could tell you, Lucy, it's really hard to say. And it's my feeling that we're going to be seeing a lot of this year, this, this year. The chambers really haven't been seeing eye to eye on a lot, even though they both have Republican supermajorities. And I should just note, um, because of term limits, Senate President Huffman is likely to challenge Speaker Stevens for the speakership next year because they're both running for the House um, so a lot of this ties back to this potential speakership election next year. Okay. Well, this Ohio Senate did also vote this week to advance a dark money proposal. Tell us what that bill would do. Yeah, so that bill um, it was pretty fast-tracked. It was only introduced last month, um, and backers, Republican backers have said that it basically creates consistency in state law. So since 2000, Ohio candidates have not been allowed to take money from foreign nationals, but that ban doesn't exist for ballot issues, like the ones we saw back in November with abortion and marijuana. Um Proponents have been pointing to what's called the 1630 Fund. That's a liberal dark money nonprofit, and it poured money into the campaign for issue one. Um, This bill was GOP backed. They've, you know, the GOP senators who introduced it have argued that, you know, everyone should be against dark money. This is tackling dark money. But when the bill hit the Senate floor on Wednesday, the entire Democratic caucus in the Senate voted against it. Um, Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio argued that it doesn't really tackle dark money, and she literally called it a sore loser bill. You know, she said that some of these Republican senators are just angry that issue one passed in November and voters, you know, pushed for an amendment that um, would codify abortion rights in the state constitution. Hmm. Well, it sounds like this goes beyond the state house. Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose asked for immediate action on this. Why was he so set on immediate action? He just, um, again, you know, this, that actually, that letter came before the bill was introduced. So I definitely think that was some of the impetus behind this bill being introduced. And the proponents just really point to how it creates parity in state law. You know, if candidates aren't allowed to accept this money, why are ballot issues? But one interesting point that one of the Democratic opponents brought up was he said he's concerned it could have unintended consequences. So, even Ohioans who are putting together petitions for local local liquor sales, because obviously liquor options are on the ballot, they'd have to register as an official political action committee or PAC. Um, so he, you know, has kind of pointed to this could have unintended qu- consequences for the small guy, he said. Hmm. Where does this where does this legislation stand now? What's next with it? Yeah, so it cleared the Senate on Wednesday, and it'll head to the Ohio House next. So we'll see um, how quickly the House picks it up. 
and they're not in session. I should say, you know, this was kind of a flurry of activity this week, but um, the legislature will be pretty quiet until the March primary elections now. Okay. Well, let's talk about um, the the topic that I teased kind of at the beginning of our conversation. Some of the state's public colleges are planning to eliminate race-based language from their scholarship awards. Tell us why, what's happening and, and what's behind all that. Yeah, absolutely. So it kind of goes back to last summer um, and the Supreme Court case students for fair admissions versus Harvard. Um, that Supreme Court case... Um, the conservative justices who command a six-seat majority on the court, they ruled that universities and colleges across the country couldn't consider race anymore as part of their application and admissions processes. So that's affirmative action. Um, And they say that that's violating the 14th Amendment. So the Supreme Court decision doesn't directly make comment on scholarships in particular. Um, But Yost has been, as you know, he's the chief um, lawyer for the state, he's been informing universities about the implications of the Supreme Court case. And he was asked on a call in January with um, public university leaders whether scholarships we're kind of part of the umbrella when it comes to race-based admissions. And he said, yes, um, he, you know, that race-based scholarships are made unconstitutional under the Supreme Court decision. You've seen this in a couple of other states, um, primarily, I would say, conservative states um, that have, you know, some universities have struck race from their scholarships, even though the Supreme Court doesn't directly mention um, scholarships as being part of this decision. It focuses on applications and admissions. Hmm. So what are universities doing to try to figure out if their scholarships align with the attorney general's interpretation of the Supreme Court ruling? Universities haven't been super, super public about this. I I mean, Ohio University and Ohio State have both told me they're in the process of reviewing awards, and they do have statements on their website that just say they're in the process of reviewing awards to make sure they're in compliance with the law. But it's not entirely clear what sort of language would be determined to be race-based. You know, I talked to a donor at Ohio University, he funds a journalism scholarship, and his um, the language in his scholarship specifically points to it's earmarked for underrepresented student journalists. And he's not entirely clear if that points too closely to race. He says, you know, it's not hard to draw a line from underrepresented students in journalism are often students of color, but um, and that's what he wants the money to go to. But he's not sure how um, a ruling like this might affect his scholarship. Yeah, I guess it could also go to a rural student uh, who whose you know community is underrepresented and that kind of thing. Absolutely, and that's the point he made to me. But um, you know, this donor Andy, he said. If the university tells him that he can no longer offer this scholarship in the way he wants to offer it, he's just going to go private with it. Hmm. How are faculty members reacting to this? 
Specifically at Ohio University, um, faculty within the College of Communications have been pretty vocal against it. Um, the director of the journalism school penned a letter to the dean of the College of Communications just, you know, saying she really wanted to put her opposition to this. On the record, um, she wrote to him, quote, the scholarship committee and the faculty remain obligated to honor the agreements signed between scholarship donors and Ohio University, regardless of the political whims of politicians in Columbus or anti-diversity sentiments among some members of Ohio University staff. So she feels that this is a political decision on Yost's part, that it's not a legal decision on Yost's part, that the Supreme Court decision doesn't directly point to scholarships and she's questioning, you know, why Yost sees it as such. Hmm. So um, faculty and Ohio University specifically put out a statement that, you know, some scholarship awards would be put on pause. Faculty have said they've been kind of in the dark about how to move forward with scholarships. So there's definitely been some um, outcry from specifically faculty in the College of Communications at OU. Okay. Well, let's go back to the State House um, for a moment. Two different Senate committees were scheduled to consider bills this week dealing with some controversial topics, guns and crisis pregnancy centers. What would these bills do? Yeah, so the first bill, Senate Bill 148, um, it's called the Second Amendment Financial Privacy Act, and it basically bans the state and also local governments from creating any sort of like a registry of guns and also their owners. Um, and it also bans retailers from creating like a firearms category code or from treating transactions with guns any differently than other transactions. Um, so that cleared committee on Tuesday, and then it actually passed out of the Senate as well along party lines. So it's headed over to the Ohio House. And it's been backed by the National Rifle Association and several other firearms associations like the Buckeye Firearms Association. So that was the gun bill that you're talking about. And then there's um, a bill related to crisis pregnancy centers that's still in committee. It had um, proponent testimony this week. It basically creates a non-refundable tax credit for pregnancy resource centers, or they're sometimes called crisis pregnancy centers. Um, according to my colleague, Joe Ingalls, these already get tax deductions, but um, the senator who's sponsoring this, Senator Sandra O'Brien, she says they create further incentive. These, this tax credit would create further incentive for folks to contribute to these facilities, which are obvious, uh, often connected to religious organizations. Um, the Ohio Legislative Service Commission says it could cost $10 million a year to do this. And opponents to these facilities in general say they pose as fake abortion clinics that try and persuade women out of getting abortion. So definitely kind of a controversial topic there. Yeah. Is it, uh, can you tell how much support both of these measures have at this point? Um, the Second Amendment Financial Privacy Act got um, a 25 to 7 vote, which was along party lines. So clearly the Republicans in the Senate supported it. And I imagine it would see similar support in the House. There is a bill in the House. Um, the I think it's the Second Amendment Sanctuary Act or I'm trying to think what its name is, but it would basically make Ohio a sanctuary state for guns um, and a sanctuary state for the Second Amendment. That one passed out of committee 
last year, but it hasn't made the House floor yet. So that has been kind of interesting because I will say, I I mean, I think there are a lot of pro-Second Amendment lawmakers here, but that one has kind of stalled in the House. So we'll see what how this one moves through the House. Um, The Crisis Pregnancy Center bill got a lot of support from um, generally anti-abortion organizations um, during testimony, but it's... um, that one's probably a little tougher to say, especially, you know, in light of issue one's passage um, and because crisis pregnancy centers are seen as so tied to the issue of abortion. Um, it's kind of tough to say where the support might lie for that one. OK, let's talk about uh, another couple bills just real quick before I let you go, because I know you have a lot you're working on. Two Democratic Democratic senators have reintroduced a couple of bills related to pay equity. What would those bills do? Yeah, so those bills um, have to do with trying to kind of end the gap between men and women that folks say exist when it comes to pay. Um, And they've been introduced before. Um, So, or, you know, bills to tackle pay equity have been introduced before. One in 2017 was, um, would have established a hotline to report even anonymously situations involving a lack of pay equity. Um, So that bill was reintroduced in 2021 again, and it um, has been reintroduced again this session. Um, It's Democratic support Democratic senators who have introduced these pay equity bills. And the other one I should say would give businesses um, a designation so the public has to know that men and women are being paid equally at those businesses. So those are the two bills that were introduced um, this past week. Like I said, the legislature's seen them before. They haven't moved on them. And um, Senate President Matt Huffman was asked, I think, twice about these bills this week, and he has said he doesn't know enough about them and he's not ready to weigh in on them. So they're Democratic supported. Um, it's tough to say when they don't have bipartisan support, kind of the path that they'll face in the Senate, particularly because there are only seven Democrats in the Ohio Senate. They command a very small minority in the chamber. And why do the sponsors of these bills, um, you know, this legislation that's been introduced before, they're trying it again, why do they say it's needed? They say it's needed for a stable workforce. They, you know, they say that it's something that, um, you know, it doesn't just benefit um, folks who, you know, women who may not be making as much as men. They say it's needed for the workforce in general to make equity and also productivity, because if folks are being paid more, they'll be more productive. That's kind of the argument behind it. Mm -hmm. Has the Ohio Chamber of Commerce taken a stand on these bills? Um, I am trying to remember, because I know Joe covered this one, and I'm Mm -hmm. trying to remember. I don't know that they've taken an official stance this round. I do believe that they've opposed the bills in the past. Okay. Well, we have taken up enough of your time. I've been talking with Ohio Public Media State House News Bureau correspondent Sarah Donaldson. Thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Up next, a local culinary empire has been sued, accused of illegal labor practices. We'll discuss the case. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. 
Jeff Ruby Culinary Entertainment faces a lawsuit that alleges illegal tip pooling, a charge the company's CEO has denied. Joining me now to talk about this case and some of his other reporting from the past week is Cincinnati Business Courier staff reporter Brian Planell. Welcome to the program, Brian. Hi, thank you for having me. I, I have to tell you, we're really excited to have you here for many reasons, but partly because your name is spelled the same backwards and forwards. Yeah, it's a palindrome. I mean, it was, it's been kind of a bucket list item for us to have you on the show. So thank you for making our dreams come true. We appreciate it. Thank you. So let's get to your reporting. A former employee has launched a proposed class action federal labor lawsuit against Jeff Ruby's restaurants. What does the lawsuit allege? So according to federal law, um, a employer is allowed to pay an employee far less than the minimum wage. Uh, in Ohio, it's half the minimum wage. In Kentucky, it's uh, about a third. <clears throat> so long as uh, that employee's tips make up the difference. But uh, that employee can't work um, sort of above certain thresholds of hours or um, they can't do a lot of sort of work that is like cutting limes. Uh, opening, closing restaurants, um, you know, polishing silverware, things that don't produce tips. They have to spend most of their time doing things that is tip-producing work. Um, the plaintiff, um, a former server uh, at the restaurant in Louisville, uh, alleged that he had to do just that, that he had to um, spend more than 20% of his time uh, doing non-tip-producing work um, and that he had to do it for 30 minutes consecutively. And those are sort of the two um, thresholds that the federal law says. If you do that stuff, um, then you need to be paid the full minimum wage, and you can't take what is called uh, a tip credit. Hmm. Um, that is, Jeff Ruby's can't take a tip credit. Um, the other allegation that he made is that Jeff Ruby's pooled tips, um, so takes uh, all or a share of the tips that uh, these uh, tip-producing uh, employees make, and redistributes them among uh, the staff. And that's fine. That's condoned uh, by the Department of Labor, um, specifically, uh, and by federal or by, by state laws in Ohio and Kentucky, although Tennessee doesn't have um, a state law governing the subject, so a bit of an outlier. But um, what is not allowed is to uh, uh, take the, the pooled tips and distribute them among employees who don't usually get tips. And it's pretty vague on what that means, but... Um, the allegation is that Jeff Ruby did just that by giving them to back-of-house employees. So uh, the plaintiff is suing on that ground as well. Hmm. How has the restaurant's leadership responded to these allegations? Uh, fair to say defiantly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They, uh, the, the lawsuit came out, uh, what was it, February uh, 27th. So that was Wednesday, I think. Maybe. It's all a blur to yeah, me this exactly. week. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, lawsuit came out this week uh, uh, in the evening, sort of unusual that they would release a press release pretty late in the evening. Um, press, you know, gets wind of it, and um, the restaurant group is just blindsided. Had no foreknowledge of the lawsuit, knew of the employee, um, but uh, didn't know that the lawsuit was coming, um, and then held a, a hasty but, but, again, very defiant press conference where uh, Jeff Ruby's uh, CEO, um, who is uh, Ruby's daughter, um, Brittany uh, Ruby Miller, or Miller Ruby. I think One it's of Ruby Miller. I yeah. think you're right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, she she said that uh, they're going to fight the lawsuit. Um, they're going to, you know, do it to the um, the, the the maximum effect, and, and is going to exhaust all the legal um, remedies, um, the full extent of the law. Is what she said. Um, 
And uh, yeah, they were they were pretty upset about it for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, and she made some statements about how look we treat our employees like family kind of thing, didn't she? I mean, yeah. she really talked about the culture there and in, in some powerful ways. Yeah, and it, I mean it's it's uh, pretty well known around Cincinnati that that's the case. I think that uh, it, it's sort of common knowledge that uh, Jeff Ruby does sort of um, you know take care of its employees and uh, do a good job job in that front. So. The, the most interesting thing she said, I thought, was about the employee itself, um, whom she described as sort of a disgruntled uh, former server. Um, she said the company terminated the employee in 2023. Uh, she said, I won't mention why, but it falls in line with unethical behavior that we don't stand for. Um, so definitely some bad blood here. Hmm. What is this former employee seeking in the lawsuit? Uh, seeking to recover unpaid minimum wages and overtime wages, which the federal law actually um, statutorily, when you sue, uh, launch a claim uh, of this kind, uh, you're automatically, if you win, you're automatically entitled to double the amount of the unpaid because it's it's gonna, not, not going to be, one would think it wouldn't be that much. So you, to, by doubling the amount that you could get back gives an incentive to um, uh, plaintiffs to sue or, or uh, you know, uh, prospective defendants not to do this in the first place mm-hmm. uh, of what is alleged. Um, and then she's also seeking uh, liquid data damages, restitution, attorney's fees, costs, and other damages. Um, but, you know, yeah, Br- uh, Ruby Miller said that uh, they take it personally and that they're going to stick up for what's right. So I think that they're going to uh, fight the suit. Hmm. There was a federal labor lawsuit. You mentioned in your story on the tip credit and tip pooling several years ago. What happened with that? So yeah, that was launched in 2013. Um, it was described to me as sort of a bit of a different factual uh, setup, but it did deal with the same uh, federal uh, labor law and the same Kentucky labor law at issue here. Uh, that was eventually settled, although Ruby denied, denied wrongdoing still. Um, but what was interesting about that is that in the uh, compl- or in the uh, response uh, to the complaint, uh, Ruby's attorneys with Frost Brown Todd had argued a pretty interesting. Uh, theory that the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the federal le- uh, legislation, um, the language uh, doesn't actually place any legal requirements upon an employer who pools tips. So the the language is you know uh, employer employer can pool tips and and they must do these things and then it lists the things that they can do and the things that they can't do. Well the and. Frankly, I don't understand this argument, but it seems like uh, maybe it holds water that those uh, certain uh, things that the employer can't do aren't necessarily actionable legal um, things, that they're actually just conditions precedent to to doing the tip pooling in the first place, Um, which the lawyers say is a different thing than creating a new legal requirement. Hmm. Um, So it's possible they could argue that this time, um, and, and we'll see. Interesting. So it sounds like there are times when tip pooling is allowed under the law and times when it's not. Is that all based on who gets to share the tips, if it's all yeah, front exactly. of house or back of house? Explain that, that a that little bit. That brings up an interesting point as well. Uh, the um, you, you, can't say, you can't share uh, tips with uh, an employer who doesn't usually make tips. Um, so like a cook, for example. Well, it, it, it's a bit unclear. Um, mm. the, the example that the... Uh, plaintiff's lawsuit uh, contains is that a, a service bartender, uh, the plaintiff was told that his tips were going to pay back of house uh, employees. And the one example in the complaint is a service bartender. The problem with that is that the Department of Labor Guidance, uh, which is posted on their website and in full view, um, you know, uh, lists service bartender among a category of employees who explicitly are able to 
uh, receive pooled tips. Huh. And so I talked to the the uh, plaintiff's attorney uh, from a Nashville-based uh, firm, um, and he you know said, well, I said service bartender, but maybe I didn't really mean service bartender. Maybe I meant barback. Barback also being included in the class that can get pooled tips. Uh, so I pressed him on a little bit. He said, we'll have to see, you know, uh, maybe we'll get that in discovery phase or see in court, you know, kind of uh, implying this is a, a tiny bit of a fishing expedition. Um, but those, you know, that detail, um, maybe a, a, a misprint or maybe he misspoke in the complaint, um, maybe a small detail, but when you're trying to beat a dismissal motion, that can become important. Interesting. Well, I know you'll continue to follow this. Very interesting case. I want to talk about another, some more of your reporting that deals with a very well-known Cincinnati company, mm-hmm. Procter & Gamble. Um, some New York City lawmakers have sponsored an attempted ban of Tide Pods and similar products. Tide Pods, of course, made by P&G. Explain what this ban would do and the reasoning behind this proposal. Yeah, it would uh, prevent uh, retailers and, and wholesalers and good vendor, goods vendors in New York City, uh, a city of 8.5 million people, um, uh, from from selling uh, Tide Pods or uh, anything that's like a Tide Pod, anything that contains uh, or that that uses uh, this synthetic water soluble uh, polymer um, uh, called polyvinyl alcohol, um, and that's the thing that encases the detergent. So the at issue here is not the detergent itself. It's not the you know the the plastic big tub these things come in. It's the um, the j- sort of gel like uh, polymer that encases the Tide Pods, which um, they say uh, there are certain groups that say um, that it uh, doesn't fully break down in the environment and that it creates microplastics, which have become a subject of concern. Sure. And I know an industry group has responded strongly to this effort. What has the American Cleaning Institute said about this proposed ban? They say it's a propaganda effort by this uh, uh, this this company called Blue Land. So um, the the attorney or the sorry the uh, the lawmaker who um, sponsored the legislation uh, himself was not uh, you know terribly outspoken about it said it was sort of a an issue they wanted to explore more uh, the industry group uh, representing PNG the American Cleaning Institute says that there's this company this competitive competitor company to PNG called Blueland that's actually behind this you know um, and that they are the ones that are sort of like gathering the research gathering the data the data on um, on uh, the, this polymer um, and claiming that it's bad for the environment and that uh, Blue Land in its uh, sort of quest to create or to eliminate single-use packaging from um, consumer goods um, is is uh, kind of conducting a propaganda campaign. And, um, you know, the, the, the issue here is, is that there's a wealth of evidence that suggests that the polymer is safe in the environment and that it does theoretically, according to modeling, break down. Uh, there is uh, the, the Blue Land has sponsored a, a study, one study that is um, sort of not in a, um, a well-respected journal that uh, suggests that modeling shows that in a condensed time interval, the polymer doesn't fully break down and does create sort of small microplastics. The well-respected studies, the, the wealth of evidence suggests that you just need to lengthen the time interval and that in, in, in sort of 90 days, there's no trace of it anymore in the environment whatsoever. Hmm. Has the EPA weighed in on this? So Blue Land uh, actually petitioned the EPA to, uh, you know, th- this polymer is, is categorized by the EPA as among the safest, you know, category of chemicals. The Blue Land petitioned the EPA in 2022 to have it reclassified um, and then to, uh, to, to, to have the EPA sort of give it heightened scrutiny. And what the EPA said was that um, the 
the one study that Blue Line conducted, which is not uh, sort of empirically based, but was rather a modeling um, using certain assumptions and that condensed interval that is a, a standard in the OECD, but is not a standard of, for the EPA because the EPA uses a, a, a standard or a, an interval that is twice as long as that, um, which would show that these things do break down sort of over time. Um, that uh, that study isn't a good enough study, first of all, and doesn't contradict the existing data, uh, which which is empirically based, um, that shows the, the polymer does break down. So the EPA rejected that petition by Blue Land in 2023. Um, and so the polymer remains as it has been um, categorized as safe. Interesting. Well, this has been fascinating. I've been talking with Cincinnati Business Courier staff reporter, Brian Planalp. Thank you so much for Thank being here. Thank you for here. having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. Our producer is Selena Reeder. Associate producer is Asiya Johnson. Technical director is Marshall Verbsky. If you miss our program live, you can subscribe to Cincinnati Edition wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lucy May. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all have a great weekend.